You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. So please open up to Ecclesiastes chapter 10 again, if you're not there already. Is this on? Can everybody hear me? Somebody tripped over the cord. Hold on. There we go. Ecclesiastes chapter 10. All right, let's bow together before we begin. Our gracious God, it is our desire and our heart's cry to understand and to know your word and to know wisdom and to walk in the path of wisdom. We pray that you'd give to us the illumination that we need by your Holy Spirit who dwells within your people, that we may understand your word and that we may obey it, and that you would do the work of sanctifying us by your truth for the glory of Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. We're starting Ecclesiastes chapter 10 today, and in case you thought there might be some hard break between the end of chapter 9 and the beginning of chapter 10, because there is a chapter division here, uh, you would be be misunderstanding what Solomon is doing here. The chapter division is is not really helpful for us, because the chapter division kind of breaks up the middle of a a subject matter. Uh, Solomon is continuing the same theme that he ended chapter chapter 9 with. Chapter 9, you will remember, he, he tells us that in the In light of the uncertainty of life and the certainty of our death, we should walk in the path of wisdom. Wisdom is what we should pursue. It's what we should aim for. It's what we should walk in. And so Solomon is commending wisdom to us, and then he ends chapter 9 with those three better-than proverbs. Wisdom is better than strength. Wisdom is better than shouting. Wisdom is better than weapons of war. And then chapter 9 ends with that statement that one sinner can undo or ruin so much good. Chapter 9, verse 18, wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. And so what we saw last week is Solomon is giving there the the relative weakness of wisdom. Even though wisdom is what he would commend to us, it's not like wisdom is omnipotent. It's not like wisdom is is permanent and perfect in all of its ways. Uh, Wisdom can be undone. Wisdom can be destroyed by one foolish sinner. One fool can undo a whole lot of good. Now, chapter 10 begins with that same sentiment. Verse 1, dead flies make a perfumer's oil stink, so a little foolishness is weightier than wisdom and honor. In other words, wisdom is very potent, or sorry, foolishness is very potent. It can undo a whole lot of wisdom. So there's a connection here. And chapter 10, verse 1, sort of is a transitional verse. Solomon is transitioning from recommending wisdom to us. And then in chapter 10, he's going to give to us a bunch of proverbs on wisdom and folly. Chapter 10 is full of proverbs. And you'll notice when we read through at the beginning of the service, you were probably looking for some structure or some outline or some theme that connects them all together, all of chapter 10. You look for that in vain because chapter 10, if there's any one theme that connects all of it, it's just wisdom and folly. Solomon talks about money being the answer to everything and the words of a fool and the path of wisdom. And, and he's just contrasting wisdom with folly in chapter 10. In order to prepare us for that, chapter 10, verses 1 through 3, sort of introduces us to this idea of wisdom and folly. And now Solomon is going to talk about folly and what it is and how powerful it is. So there's, there's really no order to chapter 10. 
other than just a series of proverbs and anecdotes, stories, contrasts, commands, and they're all sort of put together on all these various subjects in which Solomon is intending to show us how wisdom contrasts with folly to show us that wisdom is better than every other alternative. So that sort of sets up chapter 10, and our text today is just the first three verses of chapter 10, and we're going to see in verse 1 the weight of folly, in verse 2 the source of our folly, and then in verse 3, a demonstration of folly. The weight of folly, the source of folly, and a demonstration of folly. So that's verses 1 to 3. And, and, and while we're going through it, we're going to have to define what foolishness is and what the Bible means when it speaks of a fool. Because we're talking about wisdom and foolishness and the fool and his folly. It's good to understand what does the Bible mean when it talks about a fool. Because the book of Proverbs is full of information about fools. The Ecclesiastes is full of information about fools. So what is a fool? So we need to define what that is. So let's begin with verse 1, the weight of folly. Dead flies make a perfumer's oil stink, so a little foolishness is weightier than wisdom and honor. He's saying the same thing there that he said at the end of chapter 9, that one sinner destroys much good. You will notice that there's sort of a, three, a three-way parallel here. The, the good mentioned in verse 18 of chapter 9 would be the perfumer's oil in 10 verse 1, and it would be the wisdom and honor of 10 verse 1. The sinner that is mentioned in verse 18 of chapter 9 would be the dead flies of chapter 10, verse 1, and the foolishness of chapter 10, verse 1. So there's a sort of a three-way parallel. A sinner destroys good, dead flies make oil stink, and a little foolishness outweighs wisdom and honor. That's the parallelism that exists there. So that's the connection with it in chapter 9. And now what does Solomon mean when he describes the perfumer's oil? What is he talking about, the perfumer's oil? We talked about this a couple weeks ago that this was the perfumed oil or the scented oil that they would sometimes use in burials to cover the stench of a burial. They didn't embalm, the Jews didn't embalm, but they would uh, lavish all these perfumes and oils and spices around dead bodies in order to, to mitigate the stench until the flesh had decayed. The perfumer's oil was something that would be used in burial to do that. It was also something used to cover body odor and all kinds of odors that existed in the ancient world. Perfumer's oil was expensive, it was pure, it was, it was costly. It was very valuable. It was something that, was, that not everybody just had gallons of it sitting on their shelf. So it was something that was beautiful and it smelled nice. Now what happens when you leave something out that smells nice? What does it attract? It attracts flies, right? Now, so imagine you have a bucket of perfumer's oil and that's left out on the counter and the flies come buzzing around it and the flies get into it and then they float on top of it and if left uncovered and undealt with, the flies decay in there and it ends up turning the perfumer's oil rancid. How many flies do you need to spoil? How many dead flies do you need to spoil a gallon of perfumer's oil? Just one is enough. How many flies do you need to spoil a cup of your drinking water or your coffee? Really? Uh, one fly can, can ruin a whole pot of coffee, right? If you went to pour the pot of coffee in the mo- this morning and you, there's a fly floating around on the top of there, what would you do with it? If you would do anything other than throw it away, I don't want to hear you say anything. You should throw it away. One fly would destroy a whole pot of coffee. And that's the idea here with the perfumer's oil. It would turn it rancid so that it no longer smelled sweet. And how many flies does it take to do that? Just one. And so it is with folly. It just takes a little bit of foolishness and a little bit of folly to undo a whole lot of good a whole lot of positive, everything that somebody has worked for just takes a little bit of foolishness. Matthew Henry in his commentary writes this, what a great deal of mischief may one wicked man do in a town or a country. One sinner who makes it his business to debauch others 
may defeat and frustrate the intentions of a great many good laws and a great deal of good preaching and draw many into his pernicious ways. One sinner may be the ruin of a town as one Achan troubled the whole camp of Israel. Close quote. That's a good point, right? Achan undid an entire battle and brought defeat to a whole nation. It just took one foolish man who coveted the silver and the gold, and so it only takes one fool to do one foolish act and to ruin a lot of good. One fool can destroy an entire ministry, can bring down an entire man's reputation. One fool can undo and, and, and shred somebody's reputation. One fool with his foolish talk can undo things that people have built. Is it easier to build something or to tear something down? It's easier to tear something down and to destroy things than it is to build things. And so it is with wisdom and, fo and folly. Just a little bit of foolishness is all that is necessary to bring down a, a very great work. As one commentary wrote, it is easier to raise a stink or to make a stink than it is to make something sweet. And that's true. You can destroy somebody with just an, an ill-timed or an ill-spoken word. A little bit of folly is so potent and so powerful, and that's the weight of it. And the wisdom and honor that is mentioned in verse 1, some people think that, this might even, that Solomon might even be here describing the, the reputation or the character of a wise and righteous man. Right? You, you would define somebody as having a, a reputation that is marked by wisdom and honor, there's a certain glory to a wise, uh, a wise individual and a righteous individual, and one act of foolishness can strip him of that. How many people have we seen in our country whose entire ministries or entire churches have been destroyed because of one act of folly by one leader, by one person and leader? A lot, right? It just takes one act. It just takes one stupid decision. One little bit of folly can undo everything that has taken years to build. That's a somber warning. Now look at the source of our folly in verse 2. Verse 2 says, a wise man's heart directs him toward the right, or the foolish man's heart directs him toward the left. This really gets to the heart, that's an intended pun, of what it is that causes our foolishness and our folly. So maybe we should define now what a fool is, because this really gets to the center of, of what makes for a biblical fool. What is a fool? Let me define, first of all, what a fool is not. Here are the things that do not make for a fool. Foolishness, in a biblical sense, is not having a below-average intelligence. You have somebody who's maybe not as quick at school, they don't pick things up as quick as other people, or they have a learning disability, or maybe they're dyslexic and they can't read well, or they're, they're not as smart as the valedictorian in the class. That does not make one a fool. Just because you have a, a, less, a, a lesser ability to learn or to pick things up, or you're a little slower on the uptake, that, that's not foolishness. That's not foolishness at all. That's just God has made all of us with different mental capacities. Every, every individual in here, no matter how smart you are, is stands in the shadow of other people who are outside of this room who are smarter than us. So that doesn't mean that we are more foolish than they are. So foolishness and folly is not a below-average intelligence. The second thing that it is not is a lack of knowledge or being ignorant of certain things. There are thousands of things in this world that I am completely ignorant of. In fact, there, I'd be, I'm happy to say that there are more things in this world that I am ignorant of than there are things that I know a lot about. Would you be willing to say that? Now, I don't know how to rebuild an engine. I barely know how to change the oil and the brakes on my car. I don't know how to rebuild an engine. I don't know how to do brain surgery. I don't know how to give an injection. I don't know how to do heart, open heart surgery. There are thousands of things that I know nothing about. I am completely ignorant of how a nuclear reactor works, or even why it should work, or why we would want it to work. I don't know anything about any of that, but that doesn't make me a fool just because I am ignorant of a whole body of knowledge. That's not folly. 
The third thing that is not necessarily folly, not of below average intelligence and not just being ignorant of something, but making a, a providentially bad decision. Let's say, for instance, it's time for you to buy a new vehicle. And you go to the dealership and you have two choices there, the exact same make and model, two vehicles, all the options are the same, the price is identical, the only thing that is different is the color of the vehicle. One is blue and one is red. Everything else is identical. Features, make, model, year, all of it, even the price. So you just have to choose, do I want the blue vehicle or do I want the red vehicle? And then you reason to yourself, well, blue is the color of my favorite NFL football team, so I will choose that instead of the red car because the red car is the color of our division rivals. And just in case you Seahawks fans think you're coming down the good end of this illustration, think again. So you, you choose the blue over the red because that's the most passionate division rival that you have. You don't want to be seen driving around in a red car because people think you're a bandwagon jumper. Then you take the blue car home and you start driving around within a month. That you start having trouble with the transmission and some electrical things go out and the driver's side window stops working. And So you take it in and for six, eight months you have it into the dealership more often than you have it at home. And you're thinking to yourself, what would have happened had I chosen the red car? There's probably some 49er fan out there driving around in the red car without a worry if he's ever going to be able to get home, and I happen to have been brought home in a lemon. That's what I chose. Would you call that decision a foolish decision? You might initially say, you know what, it was a foolish decision for me to choose the blue car over the red car. But that doesn't make a fool. All that happened is you providentially, in God's providence, made a decision of one thing over another. It's not a foolish decision just because by a stroke of providence, you happen to have chosen something that has given you a headache. That's not foolishness. So it's not a below average intelligence. It's not being ignorant of certain things. And it's not just making providentially a bad decision. Or it might be a bad decision, but it might not be. It's not necessarily making a decision that is not a moral issue and it just didn't turn out well for you. That's not folly. What is folly? Foolishness in a biblical sense is a lack of an appropriate fear of God. That's what foolishness is. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. So the fool lives as if God does not exist. He reasons, he logics, he rationalizes, he thinks, he plans, he purposes, he designs, he walks through the course of his day as if God does not exist. Deep down in his heart, he says, God does not exist to me. I, I don't need him, I don't care for him, I don't have time for him. And so he goes about his days, his weeks, and his life as if God does not exist. For in his heart, he has decided that God is irrelevant to every choice that he makes. So it is fundamentally not an intellectual issue, folly. It is fundamentally a moral issue. It is fundamentally a spiritual issue. The fool has said in his heart that God does not exist. And so it is a, it is a lack of an appropriate fear of God. Second... I think it is uh, Philip Graham Riken who describes folly this way, or the fool this way. A fool is characterized by impulsive disobedience, self-centered arrogance, and rash disregard for the holiness of God. I'll say it again. Characterized by an impulsive disobedience, a self-centered arrogance, and a rash disregard for the holiness of God. So the fool lives his days as if God does not exist, and as if God is not holy, and as, God, as if God is completely irrelevant to everything that he does. He walks not in the paths of God without, with regard to God, but in a completely opposite path without regard and without thought to God, his word, his holiness, his character, his demands, or even his existence. That biblically is the fool. Now you cannot separate folly or foolishness in the biblical sense from its moral component. 
Foolishness in Scripture always has a moral component. That is, it is a moral deficiency. It is a moral disregard for the holiness of God. That's what disregarding, irrationally disregarding the holiness of God brings us is an immoral lifestyle, an immoral way of thinking, an immoral way of reasoning, an immoral way of living. So, for instance, an example of this moral component is given in the prophecy of Jeremiah, chapter 4, verse 22, where Jeremiah says, For my people are foolish. They know me not. Right? So the foolish said in his heart, there is no God. The foolish people have not come to God. They don't walk with God. They don't, they're not interested in God. They completely disregard him. So Jeremiah 4, 22, My people are foolish. They know me not. They are stupid children and have no understanding. They are shrewd to do, do evil, but to do good they do not know. They are shrewd to do evil, but to do good they do not know. That's the fool. There's a moral component to folly in Scripture. It's not an intellectual lack. It's not a lack of smarts. It is a lack of moral reasoning, under, of living under the light of God and under His law. Jeremiah 5, verse 21 says, Now hear this, O foolish and senseless people, who have eyes to see but do not see, who have ears to hear but do not hear. What does that scribe? Physically deaf and physically blind people? Or people who are morally and spiritually darkened in their understanding? That's what it describes. So there's a moral component to foolishness in Scripture. And so the fool, you take somebody who has a PhD, for instance, somebody who, who has a, more degrees than a the thermometer, he's spooky smart, he's got a PhD in something, he understands all kinds of things. You're intimidated to even have a conversation with that guy. He can still be the smartest guy in the room and be a complete and utter fool because it has nothing to do with how intellectually able somebody is. It has to do with how morally grounded, how morally orientated. Folly is a spiritual and moral issue it is not an intellectual issue. And Solomon is getting at this when he says in verse 2, and then we get to the heart of the verse, a wise man's heart directs him toward the right, but the foolish man's heart directs him toward the left. Let me explain what that means. He's setting two things in contrast here, that which is on the right and that which was on the left. Now, in Jewish culture, in Israel understanding, they always treated the right-hand side as if it were good, and the left-hand side as if it were something inferior. So with my apologies to left-handed people, this is not a commentary on you, and neither is this a commentary on the political right and the political left. And I've heard the verse used by, I don't know, Pat Robertson or Pat, I don't know, it was one of the Pats that's on television all the time, describing, he says, this is what Scripture says, that the righteous man's heart or the wise man's heart directs him toward the right, as if those who are on the political right are the wise ones and those who are the liberals, the socialists, the status on the left are the foolish ones. Now, I might make that argument myself, but I wouldn't use this passage to do it. Because Solomon is not describing that at all. In ancient Jewish context, they treated that which was on the right as something that was good. So Jesus sits at which hand of the Father? At the right hand of the Father, right? When Jesus separates the sheep from the goats, the, what will be on his right? The sheep will be gathered to the right, and the goats will be pushed over and dispersed to his left. Uh, the right hand was considered the hand of blessing. So when Joseph brought Ephraim and Manasseh to Abraham to be blessed, remember Joseph put Manasseh on Abraham's right and Ephraim on Abraham's left, thinking that Abraham would put his hands out and bless both the sons. Manasseh would get the greater blessing and Ephraim would get the lesser blessing. And what did Abraham do? Sorry, it wasn't Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. It was Jacob. What did Jacob do? He crossed his hands so that he might bless with his right hand Ephraim and with his left hand Manasseh. Why? Because the right hand was the hand of the greater blessing. So this we see in Scripture. Now, it, in, in, in our culture, we use right and left to distinguish political factions or po a political spectrum. 
in the Jewish culture, they were speaking morally, spiritually, and ethically when they talked about the right or to the left. And the idea is a contrast. The wise man's heart will direct him toward the right, towards that which is right, towards that which is good, to the place of security and blessing. The foolish man's heart will direct him or drive him toward the left, which is the place of cursing or the place of lesser blessing. It will be a place where he is pulled off into that which is wrong. That's the idea. Notice what it is that drives somebody either to the right or to the left. What is it? It's the heart. See, the heart is not morally neutral, is it? We sometimes think that the heart is morally neutral. That we're all born with this pristine heart that can be corrupted by our environment or with a heart that can be, can be made good through things that happen to it or are done to it. But that's not the case. The heart is not morally neutral. It's not waiting to be swayed one way or the other. We are born unregenerate, wicked individuals with darkened hearts, darkened minds, darkened understandings, hearts that love darkness and hate the light, hearts with an aversion to God, at enmity with Him. That is how Scripture describes us. So, if the fool is born, if we are all born with a darkened heart and a heart that is in rebellion to God, and that heart drives us toward folly, where, what is it driving us toward? It's driving us toward an irrational disregard of all things that are God's. Truth and righteousness and holiness. So what must happen to the heart before we are driven to that which is right? The heart must be changed. Unless there is a sovereign and supernatural regenerative work that happens in the heart of man so that he has new affections and new drives and new desires, his heart will always drive him to that which is wrong, to that which is evil. That is why the foolish man drives him away from God because he loves darkness and he hates the light and he wars against the light and he is in constant and persistent rebellion against God. And so he does always, makes always those decisions which are in total disregard of God and his law. God must step in and redeem and regenerate the heart so that we are inclined to his word and to his ways and to his truth so that now the heart of a regenerate individual thinks in terms not of what is best for me, but what would God have me to do. It is the heart that drives us. And so this is really the key to pursuing wisdom. This is why Proverbs speaks so frequently of the heart and it says that we are to guard our hearts because out of it flows all the what? All the issues of life. Everything that we touch, everything that we do comes out of the heart. It's not what's outside of a man that defiles a man, but it's what's within the heart. So if the heart is corrupt and inclined toward wickedness, if it is in its unregenerate state, that will drive that man to make foolish and godless decisions. But if the heart is renewed and it is oriented toward God and has a love for his word and we are guarding our hearts, it will drive us to the right to make wise and good and holy and righteous decisions and to walk in that path. So how do I pursue wisdom? What is at the base of it? I have to guard my heart. And if my heart is right, and, and I am inclining my heart in the right direction, and I am asking God to do that by his word, and I am being renewed in the inner man constantly, I will find myself more and more gravitating toward the right, toward that which is oriented toward God, morally, ethically, and spiritually. Now let's look at the demonstration of folly in verse 3. Even when the fool walks along the road, his sense is lacking, and he demonstrates to everyone that he is a fool. He cannot, a fool cannot conceal his folly. That's what verse 3 is describing. A fool cannot conceal his folly. So even when he walks along the road, he demonstrates to everyone that he is a fool. It is out there for everybody to see. Even when he walks along the road, is there anything more simple than just walking along a road? Does it require a lot of thought? Does it require a lot of effort to just simply be out and walking alongside the road? And unless you're 
unless you're crippled or you can't walk. I mean, that's not what I'm getting at. But, you know, this is, this is a, an, an analogy for really doing that thing which is so mundane and so simple and so everyday that everybody does it, and it doesn't take much effort, it doesn't take much thought. Just walking along the road, the fool demonstrates his folly, and he shows it off to everybody. So that everything a fool touches, even if it's something as simple as walking along a street, he displays his folly in what he does. Why does a fool display his folly so easily? Because his heart drives him toward it. And his folly pollutes everything he touches. It's weightier than wisdom and honor. And so a, a fool cannot help but reveal his folly. Because everything he says, everything he does, everything he thinks, everything he plans, everything, every motive that he has, every activity, every interaction is marked by that folly. And he can't even do something as simple as walk along a road without showing to everybody that he is a fool. Now, verse 3 describes, uh, verse 3, the description of verse 3, I should say, can be taken in two different ways, and I want you to see it. Verse 3 says, even when the fool is walking along the road, his sense is lacking, and he demonstrates to everyone that he is a fool. That's how the NASB translates it. He demonstrates to everyone that he is a fool. It can also be translated, he says concerning everyone, quote, he is a fool, close quote. could be translated that way. And, and Commentators differ on exactly what Solomon is describing here. Either one of these would be true. In other words, the fool, when he walks along the road, as he meets people in the conversations of life, he says concerning every person he meets, he's a fool. Now, why would the fool say of somebody else that he is a fool? Because Scripture says that the fool thinks that his own ways and his own reasoning is right in his own eyes. So the fool looks at everybody he meets, and he thinks he is better, smarter, wiser than everybody else. And so he says concerning every other individual, that person's a fool, and he's a fool, and she's a fool, and that person's a fool. Everybody to the fool is a fool. And Scripture describes that in the book of Proverbs, chapter 12, verse 15. The way of the fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man is he who listens to counsel. So it could mean that the fool says of everybody that he meets, in every situation that he is, his constant evaluation of every other individual is that he is a fool. It could be understood that way. It can also be understood in the way that the NASB translates it here in verse 3, that he demonstrates to everyone that he is a fool, or he says to everyone that he is a fool. Some translations have that. He says to everyone he is a fool. Now, that doesn't mean that every time he meets somebody, he shakes their hand and says, hi, I'm a fool. Hi, my name's Jim, and I'm a fool. Hi, my name's Jim, and just in case you didn't hear when I told him, I'm a fool. It's not like he wears, I'm a fool, on his T-shirt, and on the back has a kick me, I'm a fool sign on the back of him. That's not what it means that he tells everybody of his foolishness. Fools don't do that. Fools never think they're fools. That's the mark of a fool. They're wise in their own eyes. Fools don't think they're foolish. They don't admit they're foolish. It doesn't even enter into their mind that they're actually a biblical fool. So that's not what he is describing. What Solomon is describing is that in everything he does, if you just watch a fool, it doesn't matter what he touches, it is marked with foolishness. Why? Because foolishness is weightier than wisdom and honor. No matter how honorable something is, no matter how good something is, it is polluted by folly because when the fool touches it, suddenly it is a disaster. Have you ever met such a person? Everything that they do, everything that they say, everything that they touch is marked by a careless disregard of the holiness of God. It's not, an, it's not an intellectual issue. It's a moral and spiritual issue. That's what foolishness is. That's what folly is. So when Solomon says in verse 3, even when he walks along the road, his sense is lacking. He demonstrates to everyone that he is a fool. What does it mean that his sense is lacking? The NASB translates it, his sense is lacking, but that's not the best translation. Because the word sense there is the same word that is twice translated in verse 2 as heart. It's the same word. The wise man's heart 
the foolish man's heart. The wise man's heart directs him toward the right. The foolish man's heart directs him towards the left. In verse 3, his heart is lacking. His sense is not lacking. It's not, it's not his sense is lacking as if he doesn't have common sense or he doesn't have the ability, to, to the wherewithal to walk and to function in this world. That's not what Solomon is describing. There is a character heart deficiency inside a fool that pollutes everything that he does. See, his heart is lacking. Why is his heart? Because his heart is lacking, he is driven toward the wrong way. So every decision that he makes is marked by this deficient character, this morally deficient heart. What does the heart of a fool lack? A right orientation to God and his truth. That's what it lacks. His heart is lacking. What does it lack? A fear of God. It lacks a propensity to obedience. It lacks a love for the light. What characterizes a fool, biblically speaking, is not an intellectual deficiency, it is a heart deficiency. Because his heart is lacking, everything that he does is polluted by that. So why for us, believer, is this issue of wisdom and folly so important? Why are fools so dangerous? Fools are dangerous because their folly infects everything that they are. Their folly infects everything that they do. The foolishness is weightier than wisdom and honor. He demonstrates to everybody in all that he does his folly because his heart lacks a right orientation to God and his truth. That is the mark of a biblical fool. And so everything that he speaks is characterized by that careless disregard for the holiness of God. Everything he plans is as if God does not exist. That is biblical folly. So how do you and I avoid folly? It comes back to the issue of the heart. What is the source of folly? It is the human heart. So as believers who have had our hearts regenerated, we pursue holiness and purity in the inner man. We mortify our sin. We use, ask, ask God through his word to orient our, orientate our hearts to him so that we are inclined to him and to his word. We live in humble and submissive obedience to God, to his authority, to his truth. We seek wisdom. We seek after counsel, always seeking to orient our heart toward God and toward his truth. And the more that we do that, the more our hearts are inclined to do that, the more we will gravitate or be driven by our renewed hearts to that which is right. And when we walk in wisdom and we act as the wise individual, we live our lives under the sovereignty of God's providence and under the hand of God and under the wisdom that he has given to us, then he is glorified in and through us. That is the path of wisdom. So Solomon in chapter 10 is contrasting wisdom with folly. We are to avoid foolishness because just a little bit pollutes everything. You cannot even walk down the street without demonstrating your folly. But we must pursue wisdom, and we do so by orientating our heart toward God's, orienting our heart toward God and in honoring Him. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are grateful and filled with thanksgiving for the blessing of being able to meet in this place and to enjoy a time of fellowship and worship and your word. We thank you that your word has been so clear to us and has given us so much truth and so much wisdom. And we pray for, for those of us here who know Christ and are walking with him. We pray that you would orient our hearts to you. Use your word to incline our hearts to your word and to you and to your truth. Give to us an increasing love for the light and a hatred for darkness and all things that are characterized by darkness. May we walk in wisdom and walk in truth and may you go with your people this day and forevermore and be glorified in us and through us as your church. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, 
Thank you for listening.